Last night we talked about kingdom entrance, the side door to Yom Kippur. We talked about substitution, identification, death of the substitute, and exchange of life. I'm kind of old school. I, I, I need those mnemonic devices. You see, I have a photographic memory. I just don't know where I left the camera. That's the deal there. But anyway, this morning I want to talk about kingdom mindset from the vantage point of Psalm 90. Kingdom mindset. Now, we all know that in the rough-and-tumble world of professional athletic competition, there are a certain select number of individuals who can rightly be termed an impact player, right? A LeBron James, for example. By the way, I do feel bad about the Indians. That's not a kiss-up line, hoping for a good offering. I mean that sincerely. <laughs> All right, just wanted to say that at the outset. Anyway, so when we're talking about an impact player, we're talking about someone whose skills enable them to perform at a higher level of proficiency than their opponents, right? In other words, someone whose mere presence not only changes the complexion of a game, but also can influence the outcome of a game as well. Again, someone who is rightfully called an impact player. Now, in the rough and tumble world of what we might call spiritual competition this morning, spiritual competition, which is the various thought systems of our culture, which is really the, the sin baggage that we inherited from our original earthly father, Adam. You see, we, we all have family, family of origin issues, right? Uh, they were going to use my family to make a sequel to Roots. They are called a fertilizer, but we don't want to get into that today. But anyway, we're talking about, you're allowed to laugh, won't mess up your sanctification. Uh, we're talking about this rough and tumble world of spiritual competition. Again, the, the thought systems of our culture, the sin baggage that we have inherited, really what we deal with in our not yet glorified state. Howard and I agree that there's a sense in which the kingdom is both here and now and yet to come. Uh, to say that another way, partially, initially inaugurated, but not yet fully prophetically realized. That's what we're talking about today. And that's the overall theme of our Torah conference. How do we do kingdom life right here, right now? That's a timely message, is it not? I had this dream the other night that the, the Cubs won the World Series, and we had this new president called the Apprentice. And uh, I mean, we live in crazy days, do we not? We need to know how to do kingdom living right here, right now, real life, real time. So here's where I'm going with this. When we're talking about the spiritual rough-and-tumble world, okay, which is really the, the myriad of schemes employed by our adversary, you know, the things that the adversary throws out there to mess us up, to discredit the integrity of our testimony. In the midst of all of that, I want you to be encouraged because you and I have the right stuff to be impact players as well. What kind of impact player are we talking about today? We're talking about a great commission impact player. You say, John, what exactly do you mean by the term great commission impact player? Well, 
A great commission impact player is a believer who intentionally, not accidentally, but intentionally pursues spiritually lost people and cultivates evangelizing relationships with them. A great commission impact player is a believer who intentionally, not accidentally, but intentionally pursues saved or reconciled people to God and cultivates mentoring relationships with them. Hey, bottom line, you and I got the goods to pull that one off. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, or actually, my bad, chapter 15. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 describes us as a fragrance of Messiah to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. You see, my friends, you and I are the human means God uses to draw people to the Savior in a context of rebellion against the Savior. Now, interestingly, in the very next verse, 2 Corinthians 2.16, Rav Shaul, the Apostle Paul. By the way, I went to the same school as Rav Shaul, the Apostle Paul, DTS. But for Paul, that was desert theological seminary. I went to Dallas theological seminary. Anyway, that's another message. Again, you're allowed to laugh, won't mess up the sanctification too much. Anyway, 2 Corinthians 2.16, Rav Shaul, the Apostle Paul, poses a very interesting question. And I think we've all asked this question. If we're honest, we've all asked this question at one point or another. And that question is simply this. Who is adequate for these things? Did you notice that? Who is adequate for these things? In other words, who has the stuff, the skill set, if you will, to be a great commission impact player? How does Paul reply? He replies in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the next chapter over, that our adequacy is from God. It is God who has made us adequate to serve as ministers of the Brit Hadashah, a covenant that is a direct fulfillment, a prophetic promise, a day when God would not only write His instruction on tablets of stone, but on human hearts, right? Now, what do we mean by that? The program that you and I have been enabled to adequately serve is really about the fulfillment of these promises, a new heart indwelt by His Spirit, which, by the way, is a divine provision we did not have before for internalizing His revealed will as recorded in His Word. This new covenant is about the realization of God's unwavering oath to provide forgiveness and cleansing from sin. Last night we talked about how to communicate the notion, the concept of sin. Essentially, it's choosing to act out. It's choosing to live independently of God. What we're talking about today, this Brit Hadashah, this new covenant, it's about God accomplishing His commitment, His unwavering commitment to resurrect the dead and give eternal life. That's what we've been enabled to get on board with, and that's what we've been enabled to present to others who need to get on board as well. So what's the problem? What's the deal, Lucille? I mean, if we truly have the right stuff to be great commission impact players, if we can con evangelistically connect with the lost, if we can contribute to the growth process of the saved, if the divine power of God the Father has given us everything 
pertaining to life and godliness. Well, what's the deal? Why do we tend to take ourselves out of the game and put ourselves on the bench? In other words, why do we tend to get lackadaisical, blasé, apathetic, indifferent about using the resources and acting upon the ministry opportunities that are available to us, that are accessible, because we're part of this congregation, in this community, at this point in history. In short, why? Why are we often not the Great Commission impact players that we could be? Well, the truth of the matter is, I can only tell you how it is with me. And the fact is, I, I sometimes get distracted. Truth, I'm not only ADD, I'm ADHD. That's high-definition ADD, all right? You're tracking with me. <laughs> I get distracted. I get lazy. I get overwhelmed. I get frustrated. I even get depressed on occasion. Thankfully, not as much as I used to, but, you know, once in a while. Still get the blues. And so I speak to you this morning, not as, you know, a highfalutin conference speaker, someone, you know, Howard Hendricks used to say, some of you know of Howard, uh, he said, you know, you can impress people from a distance, but you can only impact people close up. A lot of truth in that statement. Absolutely. So, hey, I'm coming to you as a fellow struggler. Truth. I don't pretend to have my act together by a long shot. I'm talking as someone who is not only struggling, but someone who is profoundly grateful for the grace of God in my life. You see, when it comes to overcoming difficulties in living out the Great Commission, again, i got to be honest with you. I don't want to do a bait and switch here. I don't have any quick fix solutions. I don't have any sequential steps to success. I don't have any strategies, methodologies, or new paradigms to try and sell you today. I do have this, though. This is what I do have. I have the personal rediscovery of ancient wisdom from a trusted source. Wisdom in the Hebraic sense. Chokmah, the art of skillful living. Wisdom, which will be helpful for both of us. It seems to me that if we genuinely want to become Great Commission Impact, then we're best served by asking questions like, how should I look at life given the reality of God? Pretty basic and fundamental, is it not? How should I look at life given the fact that there is a God? You see, when I reflect on all the sermons, all the the chapel messages, all the Bible studies I've heard over the years. And like you, I've heard quite a few. The ones that were most memorable, the ones that had really the greatest impact, were those in which my, my vision, my conception of the great, infinite being was expanded and enlarged. You see, with those messages, instead of walking away thinking, well, I guess I'm just going to have to suck it up and try harder, I came away with a fresh, vibrant, head, heart, understanding of the divine who has no equal. I caught a brief glimpse, I had a little taste of the excellencies of God's person and the blessedness of walking in His ways. And so my prayer today is that that will be your experience as well. And to facilitate this, I invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, I invite you to turn in the Scriptures to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. 
And once you arrive there, notice, if you would, that the superscription reads, a prayer of Moses, a man of God. My friends, one of the reasons it is significant that Moses wrote this psalm is because Moses is like us in at least one very important respect. Like us, Moses was made adequate by God to serve under the arrangement of a covenant. Like us, against the backdrop of a holy contract, God's unchanging character, His chesed, faithful in His promises, loyal in His love, is devoted to the best interests of Moses. And so the life lessons that Moses learned are relevant for us as well. In fact, I would suggest to you these lessons are so important that the the attitude, the mindset, the perspective that Great Commission impact players need to have is the mosaic worldview found here in Psalm 90. To say that another way, Great Commission impact players look at life the way Moses looked at life. I notice some of you have your heads down, your eyes closed. I appreciate your praying for me. Let's press on. Now, it's all good. You know, I got to say this. Uh, tov mode, very good. You know, Chuck Swindoll had a great line. He says, you know, I don't take myself that seriously, but I do take God seriously. I think that's a good way to roll. All right, so let's do it. Now, to understand the way Moses looked at life, we need to know something of the experiences that shaped his outlook. The context here is really this. Moses wrote this song at the end of 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And at the time of his writing, after 40 years in the wilderness, the Exodus generation had passed away, the judgment of sin at Kadesh Barnea had run its course, and the wilderness generation is about to enter the land. So Moses writes this psalm from the background of the sin of Kadesh Barnea. Did I, you know, I, I, I don't want to pretend to be something I'm not. You know, I, uh, I grew up in a, in, a, in a secular Jewish home, and so if I pronounce some of these words in a, kind of a, a white bread mayonnaise ham sandwich kind of a way, talk to me after the service, I'll get up to speed, all right? So I, I'm a work in progress. All right, here we go. So what was the sin at Kadesh Barnea? Well, the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers gives us the details. In chapters 13 and 14 of that book, we know that our Jewish people had finally arrived at the oasis of Kadesh Barnea, which, by the way, was right on the border of the Promised Land. Now, from that spot, you'll recall Moses sent 12 spies to check out the land. They came back 40 days later, and they all were in agreement about this. This was the consensus. The land was everything, everything God said it was. It was flowing with milk and honey. But you know what? There was also a crucial point of disagreement. Ten of the spies said the inhabitants of the land, the people living in the land, were so numerically and militarily strong that under no circumstances could they possibly take possession of the land. In fact, only two spies, Joshua and Caleb, believed and said that God was with His people, and as such, He would enable them to take possession of the land He had promised to them. Well, as is often the case today, people assumed the majority had to be right, right? And there was a massive rebellion against the authority of Moses and Aaron. In fact, those two men almost are lost, excuse me, those two men almost lost their lives in a, in a coup, coup d'etat, in a mob scene, until God 
intervened and saved them. And at this juncture, God pronounced a special judgment on that Exodus generation. The judgment here was that all those who came out of Egypt would have to continue wandering in the wilderness until a 40-year period of time was completed. Forty years for the 40 days the spies were in the land. Now, during those 40 years, what we're saying is that everyone who came out of Egypt would eventually die except for the two good spies and those under the age of 20. So what we have here is this exodus generation losing the privilege of entering the land of promise. It would be the next generation, the wilderness generation, that the Lord allowed to enter into the land under the leadership of Joshua. So again, what we have, an exodus generation under a sentence of physical death in the wilderness, meaning that they would die outside the land. Perhaps this will make it a bit more real for you. Let's crunch the numbers a little bit. Let's do this. If you take the population numbers given in the book of Numbers, what this means is that Moses saw the death of approximately 1,200,000 people over roughly a 38-year period. That would be nearly the entire adult population that left Egypt from age 20 on up. The wilderness which God intended to be simply a, a place of passing through while en route to a new land, in effect, had become a huge cemetery. It was a boneyard, if you will, big time. Now again, crunching the numbers here, what does it look like to have 1,200,000 people die over a 38-year period? Well, if you do the math, it means that 31,580 people died per year. It means 87 people died every single day. Think about that for a moment. 87 funerals a day. Why? Because of the sin at Kadesh Barnea, which was what? Again, it was refusal to believe that God was with His people and as such would enable them to take possession of the land He had promised to them. And so here we have Moses, okay? He's witnessed this tremendous death toll. He's come to the end of this 40 years of wilderness wanderings. He's seen a, a whole generation perish in the wilderness, including some members of his own family, Aaron and Miriam. And what does he do? How does he respond? Reflectively, as he is being moved and guided by the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit of God, he puts into words the way he has come to look at life. Something, my friends, which is vital for us to embrace. Why? Because that same perspective, the way Moses looked at life, will help us maintain our focus, will help us to keep on keeping on, fight the good fight, as we are great commission impact players in a culture that desperately needs to see what Yeshua looks like. Amen? So how did Moses look at life? Well, first, we see he looked at the eternal nature of God and he looked at the transitory nature of man. Very vivid contrast, is it not? The eternal nature of God and the transitory nature of man. Verses 1 and 2 emphasize the eternal God. It reads, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
Now, my friends, notice here that Moses says two things about God. The first is that God is our dwelling place. God certainly has been Israel's dwelling place, not just sporadically, but in all generations. In fact, it's interesting. The word dwelling place here conveys the imagery of a protective shelter. God has been Israel's protective shelter in all generations, from the time of Abraham, the father of our Jewish people. In fact, what Moses writes here is similar to what he wrote in Deuteronomy 33, 27, where he said the eternal God is a dwelling place. And underneath are what? The everlasting arms. Exactly. You see, Moses understood that although God is indeed lofty, He's transcendent, He's way, way up there. As you have written over here, kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. He's absolute moral perfection. Nevertheless, He is with us. He is among us, you see. In fact, not only that, He's there. He's more than there. For anyone who is willing to approach Him on His basis, the basis of faith, basis of trust. Now the second thing, is that angelic beings or am I hearing ringtones? I don't know what's going on. It's all good. All right. <laughs> you know, you always got to remember to silence your cell phone. That's right. That's the... All right. Now the second thing about God that Moses deals with is God as the eternal one. This is the focus of verse 2. And notice here he uses three descriptive terms to talk about God as the eternal one. First, God was on the scene when? Before the mountains were born, right? Again, this is reminiscent of what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 33, where in verse 15 of that chapter, he speaks of the mountains as witnesses to God's covenant relationship with his people. However, God is even older than the mountains. As the second phrase of verse 2 indicates, it says, you gave birth to the earth and the world. In other words, God wasn't only around before the mountains. <laughs> he was around before Genesis 1-1, right? He created the world in general and the world in particular, meaning the productive part of the world where people live. Well, the third phrase describing God's eternity is really the kicker. It says from everlasting to everlasting. You see, there was never a time when God was not, and there will never be a time when God will not be. He had no beginning. He has no end. Now, in terms of how that truth affects you and I, I have both bad and good news this morning. The bad news is God doesn't need us. I'm going to hide behind the beam here in case someone starts throwing something. Just shooting straight with you. God doesn't need us. Planet Earth will not budge one iota off its axis if you and I never become great commission impact players. That's not how it works. You see, everything created depends on something outside of itself to exist. But God who is not created depends on nothing outside of Himself to exist. In other words, He has all He needs within Himself to be Himself, to be complete. He is totally fulfilled within Himself. He did not create us out of any need or lack in His person. But the good news is that God made us so we could get in on what He's enjoying. You say, what's that? Himself, right? He created us so we can enjoy Him, benefit from Him, and participate in His world. My friends, the eternal God 
does not need us, but He has made us. He blesses us. And guess what? He'll even use us as Great Commission impact players if we begin to look at life the way Moses looked at life. Now, the contrast to the eternal nature of God in verses 1 and 2 is seen with the transitory nature of man in verses 3 through 6. Moses writes, you turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night, you have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. What's Moses trying to say here? Well, he begins in verse 3 by dealing with the frailty of man. He says, you turn man back into dust. The force of the original language here is that of pulverized dust, finely ground powder. In contrast to God's deathlessness, man's fate is to return to pulverized dust. Do you feel better about yourself yet today? (laughs) We're destined to return to that from which we came. There's a sense in which the future of man is the same as the origin of man, dust. Now in verse 4, the focus again is on the timelessness of God. The point simply being time has no real meaning with God. It's like all one eternal now. And to illustrate this point very graphically, Moses says, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by. Question, what is, and I'm being rhetorical here, you don't have to actually answer this, but you could if you wanted to. What is a thousand years in God's sight? Well, two phrases are used to describe what a thousand years is in God's sight. The first phrase is that it's like yesterday when it passes by. My friend, this simile, this word picture speaks of the very moment in the evening when the previous day is passing away. In other words, a thousand years with God is only like a, like a night in the life of man. It's not even a full 24-hour day. At best, it's only a 12-hour night. So a thousand years, a very long period of time, from our perspective to God, roughly about 12 hours. But then Moses points out that 12 hours is even a bit too long. Look at the second phrase he uses to make the point that time has no real meaning with God. He says, it's like a watch in the night. You see, when Moses lived and wrote this psalm, we know that the night was divided into three watches or three segments, three periods. And so in comparison to God's eternity, man's life is only one watch out of three. It's only a part of the night. So again, going back to our question, what's a thousand years to God? Roughly about four hours of human life. But remember, the brevity of our lives, the shortness of our lives, isn't compared to four hours of the day. It's described as being four hours of the night. And you know, this is when people are typically sleeping. (laughs) This is when we're checked out, right? We have no awareness of the passing minutes and hours. And so having dealt with the frailty of man, after pointing out the shortness of of human life compared to God's eternity, Moses now will emphasize the certainty of death. Look again, if you would, at the beginning of verse 5. It says, you have swept them away like a flood. Eventually, 
inevitably, death will take all of us. They fall asleep, the text said. This is the sleep of death. Now, as if that wasn't sobering enough, the remainder of verse 5 and verse 6 explore another dimension of our mortality. We're compared to morning grass, which flourishes and sprouts anew, but by the evening has faded and withered away. Again, what's Moses trying to say here? My friend, I believe he is saying that the beauty of our lives in terms of our full productivity, the, the, you know, when we're really hitting the ball, when we're in our prime, the beauty of our lives in terms of our productivity is act, maximum productivity is actually shorter than life itself. You see, not only are we transitory, like the grass of the field, but like that grass, often the, the latter portion of our lives are marked by decline, like new blades of grass. You know, we begin with, with vigor and vitality, right? However, soon there's a, a steady regression toward death. The four hours of our life from God's perspective are not necessarily the length of our productivity. So no matter how long a person lives, possibly not all of those years will be fully productive. I mean, in the early years of life, what's going on? We're born, we receive nourishment, we slowly learn to walk, we gradually learn to think, we make decisions, we learn to read and write, we, we learn to live in the real world. But often in our latter years, and I just turned 60, so I'm preaching to myself here this morning. In our latter years, there's often a, a sapping of physical strength, even mental acuteness. I was so grateful today that there was a time in your service where we had opportunity to pray for the infirmities, the physical infirmities of those who are close to us. My unbelieving mother is at the front end of Alzheimer's. She has a shrinking window of time in which to respond to the Messiahship of Yeshua. Her name is Vivian. Please include her in your prayers. I would appreciate that. That would mean a lot to me. And so again, there's often a decline in the, the latter years. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. People are usually not aware of the shortness of human life until they get older, right? Hey, you remember what it's like to be 18. Man, you think you're invincible. You know, you're a stud, not a dud. <laughs> you think you're going to live forever, right? But often, by the time you get older, when you begin to come to terms with your mortality, often much of your physical and even mental strength is at least partially spent. So that being the case, what do some of us have this morning? And I'm speaking... I recognize I'm speaking to a, a vast age group here. This is a very, demographically, this is a very diverse group, and that's good. That's a sign of a healthy congregation, amen? Multi-generational, multi-ethnic. We need more congregations that are not homogeneous. You know, we tend to attract people like ourselves. This is a healthy congregation. You're multi-ethnic, multi-generational, praise God. But, uh, so what do some of us have today? We have this middle period of our lives in which we can be fully productive for the Lord. Many of us have these middle years of productivity, maximum productivity. In view of God's eternity, Moses has reduced the four hours of our life to merely two or three years of maximum productivity. And again, 
this is like Proverbs. I'm speaking in broad, general terms. These are not ironclad guarantees. That's kind of the nature of biblical Hebrew poetry, the wisdom literature. You know, This is how things generally play out, but not always. So again, from a mosaic perspective, Psalm 90, our life is, you know, the four hours of life, maybe two, three hours of maximum productivity. And because human life is frail, life is brief, it's important that we carefully plan our lives to make them most productive for the Lord. Last night I said we may have a unique opportunity over the next four years. I predict that there will be heightened spiritual sensitivity because of the uncertainty, polarization that we are seeing in our country today. I firmly believe that. All of 9-11, post 9-11, but for a longer period of time. That's how I think it's going to shake out. And we need to be ready for that. We need to be Great Commission impact players. So, Great Commission impact players, how do we roll? We look at life the way Moses looked at life. How did Moses look at life? He looked at the eternal nature of God. He looked at the transitory nature of man. But not only that, he also looked at the reason for man's transitory nature, and that is sin. Choosing to live independently of God. Acting out a practical atheism. Rolling through life as if he doesn't exist. Look at verses 7-9. through nine. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. My friends, these verses describe the death of man. Notice verse 7. It begins with the word for. What's it there for? It's there to introduce an explanation as to why death comes. Remember, in context, this is speaking of the death which came upon the Exodus generation because of their rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. And you know, for many of those folks, it wasn't just a matter of dying of natural causes. The text says that they were dismayed by the Lord's wrath, which means they were hurried away to an untimely death. Many died by direct divine judgment. And the reason for the judgment, according to verse 8, sin. Moses pictures the sins of man being set before God who judges them. Even the secret sins. D.L. Moody used to say, character is what you are in the dark. Even the secret sins we may hide from others, but not from the omniscient God who has a knowledge of all things actual, all things possible, who brings all things into the light of His presence. And then verse 9 kind of ties this whole topic together this topic of man's death, we see here for the, for the Exodus generation, for the people that you and I seek to reach as Great Commission impact players, millennials who are emoting angst over this election. My son, I went on Facebook last night. My son participated in a, a demonstration expressing dissatisfaction over our president-elect. Thank God it was a nonviolent demonstration. For the people we want to reach, there's a sense in which the whole of their life is under the wrath of God. That is to say, the hours of sunlight seem to get shorter because of the darkness caused by God's necessary, just, and righteous retribution against sin. And then what? Termination. There's a feeling of weariness 
exhaustion as one draws her last breath. And so to fully understand the way Moses looked at life, we need to know something of how he looked at death. He understood death as an untimely judgment caused by sin, a judgment that comes finally to bring an end to lives that have passed under the wrath of God. Well, next we see in verses 10 and 11, Moses discusses the lifespan of man and the wrath of God. And here's where we get real practical. What are the years of man? What is the duration of our earthly existence? Hey, Moses, how long are we going to live? Moses says the days of our life are 70 years. That's the basic minimum, although certainly many people live less than that. Then he says if due to strength, 80 years. That's the basic maximum, although certainly many people live longer than that. So what we have going on here is Moses giving us an average span of life, roughly somewhere between 70 and 80 years. Most people can expect to live until 70, although some live less than that. Others can expect to live up to 80, but certainly many live beyond that. Now here's the deal. Whether we go to the basic minimum or the basic maximum, whether we live less or whether we live more, many of the things that we tend to take pride in like the accumulation of stuff, brings trouble and sorrow. And this whole roller coaster ride we call life is like a rapidly evaporating vapor. Hebel is the word we find repeatedly in Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, right? It's often translated as vanity or meaningless in our English translations. Literally, a rapidly evaporating vapor. I think as a kid, remember he used to blow those soap bubbles, and they're pretty, and then poof, they're gone. That's the idea of Hebel. As the text says, soon it's gone, and we fly away. In other words, what initially appears long to us at the end is actually short, and life flies away like a fleeting bird. As we said earlier, you know, when you're 18, unless you have a serious illness, you really don't have any real sense of your mortality. How do young people view time. Well, they tend to view time as moving very slowly, right? Man, if I could just get through this last year of high school, get my degree from college, start making some money, you know, everything seems to take forever. Other people can't understand how the years have passed so quickly. I mean, Howard said, hey, you know, we first connected in the 80s. By the way, that was the, the 1980s, not the 1880s. Just wanted to clarify that. Anyway, you see, this is the difference between looking at it from the beginning and viewing it from the end. So the point of verse 10 is that what initially appears long to us at the end is short. Why? Because life flees away like a bird. And why does that happen? Notice, verse 11 attributes it to the wrath of God, which is what? It is His reaction to sin, which arises by necessity, given His nature. Notice in this verse, verse 11, Moses asked two questions. First, who understands the power of your anger? And secondly, who understands your fury according to the fear that is due you? My friends, one of the reasons and one of the things that Moses really wants to impress upon us today is that there are, relatively speaking, only a small group of people who truly appreciate 
the intensity of divine wrath aroused by sinfulness. Few people understand and really appreciate that much of their sufferings are due to the wrath of God. In very few people, let's be honest about it, in very few people does the wrath of God induce a sense of fear, reverential fear, to turn away from sin. Metanoia, not paranoia. Shuv, right? Literally to do a 180. And when tragedy hits, although a small minority will turn to faith in God, a vast majority will fail to make the shift in faith to Him. And so in verse 12, Moses gives us the application of the lesson of Kadesh Barnea. Teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. My friends, the lesson Moses wants us to get today is that we need to realize how few our days really are. This is the kingdom mindset. We need to understand that not all our days will necessarily be fully productive. We need to count the days that we have with a full understanding of the consequences of unworthy days, which I understand to be loss, loss of spiritual reward at the Bema, the judgment seat of Messiah. Now, here's where it gets fun, all right? An interesting exercise that we might try is this. Figure, now I realize some of you are already older and I got you covered. As I said, I just turned 60. They say it's the new 40. For me, it feels like the new 80. So I'm right there with you, all right? We're in this together. But an interesting exercise is this. Figure that you have the minimum total amount to live, okay, about 70 years, or 25,600 days. From the day you were born, that is how many days you have to live, approximately. No matter what age you are at the present time, again, assuming you haven't reached this age yet, no matter what age you are at the present time, count the numbers of days you have left until your 70th birthday. Now, please hear me. I'm not suggesting that you do this on an ongoing daily basis. That could get kind of weird. You get a little morbid around that one. Do it, you know, just for a couple of weeks. And I think it will change us as we realize in a new and fresh way the brief length of our life and the nature of our responsibility. So again, I'm suggesting count the number of days you have left until your 70th birthday, and then every morning subtract one day. Again, you might have less than 70 years, you might have more than 70 years. However, in the days you have left, our productivity level may not always be the same. So whatever age we are, what we have left, we go for it. We don't hold anything back. We make it count for eternity. This is the kingdom mindset. We need to keep in mind that the result of Canish Barnea was not just the killing of time for approximately 38 years with nothing positive accomplished. I mean, talk about been there, done that. I mean, the same monotonous thing every single day. Get up in the morning, have a little manna, wait for the cloud or pillar of fire to move or not move. I mean, my goodness. Plus, you know, if circumstances broke the monotony, it generally only happened when God took somebody out. You know, that was, in essence, the wilderness wanderings. You know. So again, I would recommend that we number our days for you know limited period of time, maybe a couple of weeks. You know, again, we could start thinking morbidly, like, oh my gosh, I only have a couple of thousand days left to live. What's gonna ouch? But for a short season, 
count up how many days you have left to live, then every morning subtract one day, realize how much time you have left to be productive for God. And then, I'm hearing people count their ages as I speak. That's okay. This is participatory experience. That's all good. Make each day count for eternity. That's the bottom line. Why? Because the purpose for counting our days, Moses says, is to get us a heart of wisdom in the sense of gaining skill for living. The Greek conception of wisdom, the term is Sophia, that's kind of more cognitive, how much info you can cram into your head. Again, the Hebraic idea of wisdom is that of the art of skillful living. How do you navigate through life? And you know, for us, that's often choosing between a good thing and the best thing, right? Having that type of discernment and awareness. And so, Great Commission impact players, kingdom mindset. We look at life the way Moses looked at life. How did he look at life? He looked at the eternal nature of God. He looked at the transitory nature of man. He looked at the reason for man's transitory nature, human sin. And lastly, as the children are coming in, verses 13 through 17, we see that Moses prayed. He prayed and looked forward to a return of God's blessing. Are you in the market today? for a return to God's blessing? If so, let's focus on verses 13 through 17. The first thing Moses prayed about as he looked forward to a return of God's blessing was a turning away of divine wrath. Notice the phrase, how long, in verse 13. This simply means, hey, how long are you going to be angry? How long are you going to be hacked off? Then Moses says, be sorry for your servant." Not that God has anything to be sorry about, but rather Moses' plea here is that the wrath which fell upon the Exodus generation would not extend, carry over to the new wilderness generation. Hey, he's saying turn sorrow into joy. Hey, we've all known people. We've all known individuals, both believers and unbelievers, who have a tough way to go because they're reaping what they have sown. They're experiencing the negative consequences of foolish choices. And so the point is, as those people seek to get right with the Lord, we can pray for God to exercise His mercy upon them. And when we do that, we'll be demonstrating something of the mosaic heart of a Great Commission impact player. Well, continuing with his intercession, verse 14, Moses asked God to remember His Chesed, his covenantal love and loyalty. He says, oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness. You see, Moses here is looking forward to a new period of joy for Israel. He's saying, God, restore your people to a state of blessing for the sake of being true to your Abrahamic covenant. Well, we talked about this morning. And when you do that, it will result in Israel experiencing internal and external joys all of their days. My friends, like Moses, we do well to prayerfully affirm and call upon the promises of God. Promises, again, like his declaration in 2 Corinthians, that we have been made adequate. We got the right stuff to be a great commission impact. And then in verse 15, we see that Moses engages in what we could call a little sanctified holy chutzpah. He prays for proportionate restoration here. He says, make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Here's what's happening. Here's what's going on. After the restoration 
of God's favor, may the enjoyment of abundant life be proportionate to the period of suffering. Hey, your wrath burned against us for 40 years. Now I have the audacity to say, restore your blessing upon us for 40 years. Guess what? We too can intercede for others with that kind of boldness. Trust me, God is not offended by such prayers. And then finally, the remaining verses, 16 and 17, deal with the work of God and the work of man. Howard and I were talking this morning. I, I said, you know, sometimes we gotta, we got to work like an Arminian and pray like a Calvinist, right? Work as if it all depends on me and pray as if it all depends on God. That's, that's kind of how we have to roll sometimes. Verse 16 says two things with regard to the work of God. First, let your work appear to your servants. In other words, may your care, your preservation, your guidance become evident in your work with this new wilderness generation. And then secondly, Moses says, and your majesty, the awesomeness of who you are, to their children. Now this word translated majesty, it emphasizes the beauty of the Lord, the attractiveness of the Lord. He's saying, Lord, allow this new wilderness generation and the generations that come after them to experience your beauty as seen in your power to spiritually and physically deliver. Hey, they know you're able to punish. <laughs> they got that one. Now show them that you're also able to bless. In verse 17, Moses discusses the work of man by beginning with a request. He says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. This Hebrew word for favor means the pleasantness of God. The pleasantness of God. You see, Moses is not only asking God to display his salvation beauty, he's also asking him to display his quality of pleasantness to Israel. Possessing the beauty of redemption enables one to experience the pleasantness of a restored nurturing and even reconciled relationship and so Moses concludes he wraps it up by emphasizing the specific area in which he looks forward to return of Yahweh's blessing Adonai's blessing upon his people in fact would you notice here he makes the same statement twice there's an emphatic level of passion behind his request which is what confirm for us the work of our hand yes Confirm the work of our hands. What's he talking about? What's he referring to here? He's talking about the everyday responsibilities of life done in obedience in accordance with the will of God to glorify Him, to make Him look good. Remember, you had this wilderness generation. They're moving from a place of instability to stability. They're moving from a lack of productivity to productivity. Moses understood that they needed God's blessing if they were going to learn to work skillfully for the Lord. So let me close with this. Would you like to grow today in your ability to work skillfully for the Lord? Would you like to have a kingdom mindset? Would you like to be a Great Commission impact player? Again, someone who intentionally, not accidentally, but intentionally, proactively pursues lost people cultivates evangelizing relationships with them, someone who intentionally, not accidentally, but proactively pursues saved people, cultivates mentoring relationships with them. Hey, we have been blessed, right? 
No question about that. Hey, the adequacy for this task, again, comes from God. So the question is, where does it begin with us? I am saying today, it begins with looking at life the way Moses looked at life. It's recognizing that no matter how long we live, from God's point of view, life is very short. It's recognizing that no matter how long we live, not all our years, and possibly only our middle years, will be fully productive. And even in those middle years, tragedy, illness, sickness may sideline us for a season. I know what that's like. I had kidney cancer back in 2006. One of the best things that ever happened to me. I learned to be content in the moment. I learned to truly regard each and every day as a gift. I used to think, boy, life really begins when I hit my goals. What a stupid way to live. Seriously. I can now have contentment in the moment because of His grace. That's what it means. That's what it looks like to have a mosaic mindset. It's planning our lives in such a way to be most productive for the Lord, doing His work, the work of making Talmudim, disciples, lifelong learners of the things of God. But hey, remember, my purpose in all of this is not that you would say, well, I guess I'm just going to have to suck it up and try harder. That ain't what this is about. I'm praying that you and I would come away from this message today with a greater resolve, a renewed passion, to look at life the way Moses looked at life, to have an expanded, enlarged vision of the incomparable God. And so, I don't mean this in the Southern Baptist sense. I mean this in the literal, messianic, congregational sense. This is my closing statement. And I think it's a beautiful summary of Psalm 90. Alan Ross, you know Alan, right Howard? Great commentator on the Psalms. Sure you do. Anyway, <laughs> he's good. I got one of these. Good guy. It says this, When God rebukes one for his sin, he feels most frail and transitory. But when he is blessed by God's favor, he feels most worthwhile. He shares in the work of the everlasting God. Weakened by God's discipline, one is acutely aware of their mortality. Abiding in God's love and compassion, one is aware of being crowned with glory and honor. My friends, that is the mosaic journey of a great commission impact player. That's the kingdom mindset. That's how it is with someone who can truly say, only one life will soon pass. Only what's done for Messiah will ultimately last. God bless you, and thank you for your time and attention today.